Who are all these white people behind you, man? <laughs> <laughs> There's like white people with a dog. Can we get a Latino back there, man? Like, I'm sad about uh, this. Well, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it really, like, Aquaman stands out to me as, as you know, as really standing out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things, and like, Underrepresentation in movies is obviously an old song, man. But like, really excited recently when they made like the new uh, Spider-Man movie, and and the Spider-Man is uh, you know like a little mixed race Dominican kid, like super. Like I don't go to movies, Andy. I don't go. I like movie theaters are gross. People cough. They're loud. You know, like they're sticky. But I went to go see that movie. It was awesome, first of all, but also. It's nice to see a kid who acts like I did and be a superhero, you know, wearing the same shoes and living the same life. I mean, I'm not from New York, but you get my point. Like, I get the power of that. We're making slow progress in this area. Yeah, we, we are, are. We are. The, the cartoon behind me actually, you know, started airing in the 70s. And I it was still on in the 80s. But, like, that's a really old cartoon. Yeah. So it, it's unsurprising to me at all that the whole cast looks like this and all the <laughs> look like this. I mean, we chose this because... You, we, our guest Justin is the CEO of Wirewheel, and like I've gotten to know him over the last two years, and you, you have a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. And like, what stands out to me is someone who, you know, has like negotiated the Privacy Shield, was at a large law firm in the Obama administration, and then he decides to start a tech company. But like, when you get to know Justin, his favorite place to be is shooting shooting the shit about privacy with people and, and learning and being curious yeah. and um and i just like he's just he's a good friend and he, he he's wants- a high morality high integrity individual yeah like you know what i mean like very much not uh what's the word i'm looking for here like he's not an agitated person or an agitator he's very kind of like steady but He's principled. You see it in his work. You see it in his public engagement. You obviously like see it in his past work at the administration, et cetera. Like he's a principled person, man. Somebody I look to is kind of like a compass in our little skewed world of, you know, whatever. Couldn't agree with that phrase more compass. Like I saw, I never, I, I knew of him before I met him. So I was at, um, remember trustee, they're still yeah, of course, yeah. doing, doing, um, like privacy policy certification and stuff. And now they're called Trust Arc. And I was at, they did a conference in San Francisco and I went and Justin was the, there was a fireside chat uh, <laughs> with, Justin, with Justin and somebody else. And I think it was just after he, he was either in the middle of negotiating Privacy Shield, I think um, at that time. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like what a position to be in. How did he, how did he do that? And um, I didn't meet him for another, you know, year later, Noga, our, our mutual friend introduced me to Justin. And, um, you know, it just, same thing happened to me actually with Noga, where I saw her speaking somewhere and I was like, wow, look at, look at, look at the big brain on, on this person. And now I call these people friends and I call yeah. them, I can call them and I can, yeah. I feel so honored that they want to 
they want to talk about these issues and they think that that we have our own you know kind of ideas to contribute to the conversation and uh feel so lucky and fortunate just to have these people in our professional lives and um well in our personal lives they're our friends you know like uh i totally agree if this yeah. podcast has done anything for me having to deal with you constantly is uh, hard. <laughs> no but if this podcast has like if i if, if i look to myself to like what is my main gain from this podcast right like what do i get out of this i get two i guess two things obviously hanging out with you every day is fun or all the time is fun um uh but we probably would do that anyway um and so uh so that's that's awesome but it's observing the brilliance of our friends like the uh, like you know what i mean like like the deep brilliance of all these people around us is so humbling to me first of all it makes me feel dumb which is good and then the, the other thing it makes me feel is grateful like to your point i, I know that when i come up across hard problems at work or even like in life like work adjacent stuff yeah. i can reach out to this like deep pool of thoughtful careful brilliant human beings to help me solve it and that it's it makes me feel empowered yeah it makes me feel valuable empowered. i play tennis all the time with this a buddy of mine named shri and he's a level better than me and you 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 have to do that you have to have people that are or just they're different like think differently he's a different tennis game than I do like he's got different you know things he brings to the table and I and I that analogy really works for me in personal and professional life so we're so lucky and I want to tee up the conversation with Justin because it's such a good one but um couldn't agree more and he's just he's he's a perfect example of that for us for sure I love it I feel like next season of the podcast should be like 80s sports figures and <laughs> uh, and I've got some good tennis ideas for you man right. <laughs> but yeah let's, let's get to Justin here it is with Justin. Oh, <laughs> we're here. Here we are. We're here at the Data Protection Breakfast Club with uh, a guest I'm really excited to talk to, Justin and Tony Pillay, who's the CEO of Wirewheel. I'm a two-time customer of Wirewheel uh, at Session M and, uh, and now at Alice. Uh, they're a privacy technology provider, among other things. Uh, if, I, if you'd existed when I was at DataZoo, I would have used you as well. But uh, here we are. Uh, we're happy to be here and, and glad to be able to talk with you. Well, it's great to be here with both of you. I, I'm a I'm a fan of the series, and um, more than anything, it's you know, especially now, Andy and Pedro, the idea that we can get some time to have connectivity when none of us can actually sit together at anything is just awesome. So anyway, I love what you all are doing for the community, and I'm really just delighted to join today. Thanks. We're just having fun. Like, we're exactly. having fun with each other, seeing our friends, and and trying to bring bring this privacy stuff to, to like bring it down a level, you know, in terms of yeah. intensity. Um, so you're you're a great person to talk to because your career has had such a cool arc and changes over time. And and I just I really want to. I really want to dig in a little bit like because where you began is very different than where you are now in some some ways and so like how did it start for you were you always like i always want to be a lawyer or i always want to be a public sector attorney and and then a private like you've done everything so i'm just curious about how it, how it got you know going for you yeah well first of all uh i appreciate you saying that it's nice and i i have i've been i have been really lucky i i not only got to work as a lawyer for years with a great firm, but I, I've had a chance to serve in all three branches of 
the federal government and then start a tech company, a tech company, which I just love. But the way, the way I first started and got interested in the law, uh, when I was in college, I came to DC and I did an internship at the Public Defender Service and I was an investigator at the time. So um, it probably gives me my best stories that my kids actually care about. I don't know about you all, but telling a story about some deposition that you did as a corporate lawyer, it's like eyes glaze over, but, you know what I mean? It's really not very interesting, but all of these cases that I uh, investigated when I was you know, 17 years old, it really gave me a huge appreciation for the role that lawyers can serve in their communities for underserved parts of our community. And I, the Public Defender Service, Andy, I know you and Pedro probably know this, but it's one of the crown jewels of the criminal justice system in the United States. Like the best criminal defense lawyers in the country like want to work there and they donate their time, you know, at, at very low pay to help out in underserved communities. So a lot of the folks that I worked with, um, you know, as an investigator became judges and it really inspired me to make sure that when I went into the law, that whatever I was doing, that I tried to make sure I carved out a huge chunk of my time to serve folks who didn't have access to the kind of legal support you could get at Arnold and Porter. Like, so it, it was a, it was a firm that, that was committed to pro bono and I got to do all kinds of work with, um, you know, kids who were having trouble navigating the educational system. I could help, um, you know, folks who were arrested, but, you know, never had a chance to work with a law firm with the kind of depth we had. So it, it, I don't know, it was a great way to start my career. I love that. I love that some of these firms will do that. I was clerking for a judge in Baltimore and we had a post-conviction matter. And I remember looking at who wrote the paper on the other side. It was a law school classmate of mine who was at Scadden. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, this is great because this was a criminal defendant, you know, had no no access to Scadden um, or, or Arnold Porter or anybody that, you know, um, that they they could get that. that I'm, I'm really glad that firms do that. I don't know though that they do it enough. But. You know, they, there are a lot of them that are committed to it. So I don't want to single them out that way. But the firm Arnold and Porter was just great at it. And they hired the, you know, the great Mary Kennedy, who had had been teaching uh, criminal defense at Harvard to come run a clinic. And so I was a first year associate, Andy, like, and you come, you know, from the legal side. So I was a first year associate and I had a jury trial in DC Superior Court. I was not, I, I literally had just been sworn into the bar and I showed up for this thing. And <laughs> it was me and then three senior partners, including somebody who tried many cases, showed up for this little jury trial. And when the, when the U.S. Attorney's Office found out Arnold Laporte was involved, everybody showed up there. So the judge looked up from the bench and said, it was very similar to what you're saying. What the heck's going on here? This is a small criminal trial. There's like eight lawyers in the firm. Uh, but it, it was a fun way to, it was a fun way to learn. And it's a, it was an amazing way to realize just how much help you can bring and how much you know underserved communities need help 
I mean, there's just so much you do. And even when you try, you still fail a lot. I mean, a lot. On a different vector, you did a, you did a pro bono matter that was related to 9-11. So that I imagine, that's later, right, in your career. And that's a different that's a different animal altogether, right? Because that defendant is a very in a very different position than you know, kind of what you're describing before. So, what was that like for you? Because then you probably you'd done a lot more in your career at that point and, and had different experiences. Yeah, I mean, the, the, again, I think the pro bono side of it I end up talking about because you could make a difference, and I'll highlight two. So that's one that I could talk about. the The one that I the one case that still sticks with me a lot is um, there was a case where I was appointed by the Court of Appeals. Um, and in a very, very briefly, 20 years before, um, this, the, the person I was uh, appointed to represent, when he had been a kid, his parents had both been absent. And um, he turned to two of his cousins to help him. I mean, he was, you know, 14, 15, 16. And um, his cousins were ultimately convicted of running one of the most violent drug gangs in sort of the Baltimore, Washington area. He had done very, very little, like let's call it then, you know, accused of being essentially a drug mule, like carrying stuff between his cousins. But as you know, when, when you get caught up in the middle of a conspiracy, you get, you can get the most harsh sentence that everybody can get. And I'm, I'm saying like by the time the whole thing was broken up, he was only 18 or 19 years old. Anyway, he got life in prison without parole. And I was appointed to come in and, and just make the basic argument, is that fair when he was a kid, when most of the things happened? And, and as you all know, you know, kids like juveniles can't get life in prison without parole. And we ended up putting together an argument it seems technical, but whether you are a kid when the conduct happened or not, we do, we argued was a jury question and, and hadn't been presented to the jury, and we won. And this gentleman who had served for twenty plus years, got his degree, had done a tremendous amount to like lift himself up and lift himself up in a in prison, we got him out. And it's a case like that that where you were able to help somebody who, you know, it was going to be very hard for him to have a second chance that I was really proud of, you know, and it took a whole team effort to kind of get it done. And then, of course, doing, I ran an appellate clinic and all in underserved communities. And that brought us to the attention of the Court of Appeals. And out of the 9-11 convictions, the court asked us to represent one of the defendants, which, of course, brought a whole, you know, national security side of it to it. So anyway, I could hey, Justin, about, uh, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that story about um, the the gentleman who got life without parole. What was his race? Uh, he was African American. That's the irony of calling the system the justice system to me, because um, uh, I knew that without you even saying it, right? And I'm looking at the photo behind Andy, and when we think about criminal justice, we your mind goes in one direction. When you think about superheroes, it goes in another. And uh, and th that is the trouble. And I'm glad you were there on those front lines to fight that fight. Um, and the sad part, I've done a lot of pro bono work myself too. You know what, I, it makes me sad. You get small victories and, um, and it, that feels good. And what you did is tremendous. And I'm grateful for you having done it and actually 
pursue justice in an, in, in, he shouldn't have been in prison that long anyway, but that's a different issue. Um, uh, but what makes me sad is that there's thousands of him, um, you know, thousands sitting and rotting in cells because our criminal justice system is discriminatory by its very nature. And um, like failure to admit that from the, I know we do in this call here, but failure to admit that from the get go is, um, is part of the reason that it persists as it does. And, um, you know, I mean, this is Black History Month and I'm on social media hearing calls to cancel it and to like not educate people on the systemic racism that has occurred in this country and is part of this country's core. And, uh, you know, as a lawyer, we're all lawyers. Sometimes I'm ashamed. That's how I feel when you tell stories like that. I feel shame that it even is a story. No, I mean, Pedro, I agree there, but you know, I, I'm, I think every day you'll, there, there are lawyers all around the country and a lot of folks that are part of our normal community that donate their time to help. And I'm, pr I'm proud every time I hear about it, to be honest, because it takes everybody chipping in to help people get support. And, you know, I, I know this is interesting, but I, I viewed my role when I would go in and get introduced to a client, Pedro, the number one thing I had to prove when I first walked into the room was to prove that I was going to actually be their strongest advocate because their experience a lot of times in underserved communities is of getting an, uh, an appointed lawyer whose heart is in the right place, but just doesn't have doesn't the, have the resources. Yeah. yeah, they don't have time and resources. So the, the ability to come in um, and be able to say, hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to try this case for you. And we're going to bring everything we can to the table and you're going to get you're going to get like what you think you need on this case and it's i don't know it was it was a proud thing for me to be able to do in the context of of a law firm and um but i do agree with you there's so much injustice in the justice system on, on race basis. Uh, I, I think for example this opportunity we may have in the new administration to legalize marijuana and maybe retroactively let a lot of people out of jail who were convicted is a huge race, to me, a racial justice issue at this moment, because those laws like have an extremely strong uh, bias built into them. Anyway, we, we could talk about a lot of No, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'll say something about that too. Um, people named Pedro and African-Americans are the ones who risked their freedom for the last hundred years to monetize marijuana um, uh, in order to advance their economic interests in the face of desperation where they had no other opportunities. And, you know, in the last 15 years, it's become fashionable to legalize it. In my opinion, it's mostly because uh, white privileged people have decided that it's now an avenue for both enrichment um, and wealth generation and taxation. Um, and the people being excluded from this new economy being created from the legalization of, for example, the, the, the sale and, and cultivation of marijuana are the very people who sold and cultivated it when they, you know, when it was a high risk activity. So not only should we free all of these people, um, we should make sure that these people are involved in the tremendous wealth generation that this new industry is going to create in this country. Um, otherwise, it's not fair. Love this conversation. It has nothing to do with privacy, but it's good. Anyway, 
I, I want to see Black Panther on your on your on the next. I'm gonna put Black Panther behind me next time. I know that's not DC Comics, I don't think, but anyway, like we just we need we need some diversity in our superheroes. I think, I think that the the conversation, like one of the problems, also is just the the slowness of the conversation. Yeah. To become to become, you know, you you we we saw a lot of it last year. You know, just because of circumstances that we're in, we saw that conversation change a little, and we're just not like my own personal experience as a white kid growing up outside Baltimore, I had no experience with this stuff. And then I went and clerked in city court in Baltimore and I saw every major criminal. I had a judge that did all these criminal cases. I saw every murder, you know, major criminal cases. And my takeaway from that was the city, the, the, the police have a race problem. There's a, there's a racism issue in the city. There is a, 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 a police you know, a police kind of issue in the city and there's a drug problem. And, and in addition to the drug problem, there's just a, a major problem with respect to access to treatment. And so like, we should be like way more focused on getting people treatment than throwing them in prison. And we just didn't, I saw that, you know, at this point that was 15 years ago and I don't believe that it's really changed much. And so what it does is that creates the conditions for all of the, for the number of cases, you know, much like the one Justin described from a large conspiracy all the way down to somebody that just is selling hand to hand on the street in Baltimore and, um, and, and is doing that because they have to make money. Like they have, children facilities, and there's no other way to make that kind of money and so it's um you know, like this idea that people that most people who sell drugs are bad is complicated because it's mostly an economic decision based on despair and 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 you know uh, lack of opportunity but let's tie it to privacy because i know how to do this <laughs> yeah let me, let me wait i got i got a way to do this i got, do a, way to do this. Do I got a way to do this <laughs> so sticking with this theme of fairness right and just Disable outcomes is that a word or did i make that up um uh fair outcomes right the privacy debate and i've been having this debate at work quite a bit recently um is almost always shrouded in like the ability to maintain autonomy and the ability to exclude others from your space right like this is where a lot of like when I think of like the EU privacy narrative it's very much of like I need a space in which I can operate without a chilling effect companies and governments shouldn't be as intrusive as they are because that intrusiveness in and of itself is a harm because it kind of affects my autonomy in a way right that's the common theme that I hear in like aggressive privacy advocacy um, we need privacy so that we can be free and that is paramount Increasingly, I dissect, I'm a privacy lawyer and have been a privacy advocate for a long time, but increasingly I'm skeptical about the um, like uh, bulletproofness, if you will, of that argument. Because I think you have to weigh that interest for autonomy, which in my opinion is shrouded in Western patriarchy and economic privilege, but that's a different issue. Um, uh, but like that passion and zeal for uh, exclusion and autonomy I think you have to weigh it against like what in what is like the interests of people, the benefits to people uh, when some privacy is eroded in the name of tremendous gain, like being able to connect with community 
that you wouldn't have found otherwise. Being part of a diaspora where now, for example, because you've shared your ethnicity online, you can connect with people all over the world that are just like you, like, you know, uh, displaced or whatever. Um, the example I love to use is like the Cuban refugee experience. But for Facebook, knowing that I'm a Cuban, but for me sharing with Facebook that I am a member of this community through my membership in groups or through the connections that I make with people on the platform, the suggestions that Facebook makes to me about like who to be friends with is almost is extremely valuable because I am a refugee. I'm here now. I, I, I don't have my like social network back home to be able to find and make all of these connections and get resources to make myself able to like advance my interests. That would not be possible if I didn't, if, if the platform didn't have the capacity to know that about me and then make those links, right? So some of my privacy is obviously being eroded, but to a tremendous benefit to me, and I speak this way as a refugee, like I'm not, like this isn't a hypothetical, right? I was not born in the United States. I was brought here as a child. I'm a visa overstay and I'm a member of the Cuban diaspora, right? And so my ability to connect with other Cubans on not just Facebook, but anywhere, it's Twitter, whatever, doesn't matter is incredibly valuable to me. And I understand that I'm making an exchange of some privacy about myself to get that value. How do we think about the weighing, and I'd be interested just in your take, Justin, but like the weighing of our privacy interests, which most privacy advocates that are prominent uh, are American or European and sit in their perch of privilege, which we do too, um, of like having uh, the ability to reflect on these sort of abstractions that privacy are, Versus like the billions of people who benefit tremendously from like the social networking that happens online. Just how do we weigh that more fairly? Because I don't think this part that I just raised really has a loud voice in the debate. Interested in your thoughts? No, I mean, the, the, these are really important issues, Pedro. And I think here's what I saw. You know, I, I had that having the chance to serve in the second uh, Obama administration and seeing around the world privacy rising in prominence over even those four years as a fundamental human right. And, and it's recognized that way in parts of the world and in other parts of the world, it's more in the vein of a constitutional or legal right, Pedro. And I think that's part of what you're getting at um, because where in parts of the world it's thought of as a human right, it starts to be in parallel with other human rights. And on a human rights issue, a, a country might say on this human right issue, we can actually decide for you what you can do as opposed to where it's a constitutional issue or a legal issue. So if I were to, if I were to bring down a, a level what I was just saying, when you, look at, when you look at the difference between the European approach and even the US approach, I wrote a op-ed, you know, a little bit more than a year ago, calling for a U.S. you know global privacy law, primarily because we do have a different approach in the U.S. on issues like privacy and balance versus the fundamental approach that's different in Europe. Um, I completely agree that there are going to be places where, if that people should be able to make a choice, a knowing choice to trade privacy for a benefit they see. And the one that you are talking about, Pedro, is a perfect one. Like on a regular basis, I know that I'm sharing 
my personal data with a platform because it actually enables me to connect with people. Um, and I think that is a choice. I think in other parts of the world, there may be situations where the government might say, you aren't allowed to make that choice, right? We just don't think you should be able to share that data. Um, the hardest thing for me right now out of all of this is, I really don't think most people, like human beings that walk the earth, have any idea what the heck is happening to their data in a very fundamental way. And I don't think anybody feels as a general matter that if you change your mind about what happens with that data after you shared it, that you have any ability to control it. And if I were to flip it back the other way, Pedro, imagine how much more quickly we could have tackled things like COVID and getting a vaccine and reopening our economies and establishing connections with people and managing mental health issues and helping connect communities like the one you're talking about. If all of us believed that we had a good idea that we knew what was happening to their data and that the minute we didn't want that to happen anymore, we could either get it to stop or we could get our data back. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I would let my data be used for a lot of things if I really believed it was only gonna be used for that purpose and then what if I wanted it to stop, it would actually stop. I just don't, I don't have any faith right now, fundamentally all across the board that I have that control. I tend to agree with you, but see, here's what I think happens though. The laws that exist on the books now, like let's just say the preeminent laws, right? Obviously GDPR, CCPA, LGPD, couple others. These are the kind of forefront, you know, vanguard laws of privacy. They create all of these, uh, complicated uh, compliance uh, obligations, right? And all of those obligations are tied to rights, which we don't have to argue the merits of. I agree with you that these rights are meaningful. Um, the problem for me with all of it is to your point about lack of control, I don't know that the current regulatory approach helps people truly and meaningfully exercise the rights that these laws give them. Because I teach a class, and yesterday we were talking about GDPR, and my students, these are law students, uh, you know, we were having this discussion about uh, the exercising of your data subject access rights. And, you know, and the discussion went something like this. We're the sophisticated ones. We're the ones with the time. We're the ones with the education. We're the ones with the understanding. If I actually wanted to exercise control over my data, I might be able to do so over one or two companies. And that would take a tremendous amount of labor on my part. Like if I just decided that I don't want Facebook and Google to use my data, my life will fundamentally change, right? And I will have to really work hard to make that happen. I think both companies can execute on it because they have the resources and the infrastructure and the people and the expertise to make it happen. But it would be really hard for me to do. But I'm also not under the illusion that it's just Facebook and Google that use my data for whatever reason, right? Like there are thousands of companies that I interact with every day. I mean, there's probably a hundred apps on my phone. You know, there's all the companies I interact with when I go shopping and moving around about myself, you know, about my stuff, business in the world. There is no meaningful way for me to exercise my rights if I want to do so like wholly, holistically. There's just no way. I can't do it. So then what's the point? Did that come up, Justin, when you negotiated Privacy Shield? When you were the lead negotiator, representing the United States, negotiating with you know folks in Europe who have a different fundamental approach? 
And so we know now that Privacy Shield was invalidated in, in large part because not exactly what you said, Pedro, but related in the sense that they don't trust our controls, you know, like they just don't. And whether that's a political issue or whether that's, you know, an actual technical privacy issue could be could be debated. But I think it, now I, I see, I'm really curious about what that was like for you because I imagine many of the issues that we just discussed came up, the technical issues, the fundamental rights issues and, and things like that. So what was that like? And then like, can we, will that, how will that change in the future? Because what Pedro's saying is true. No, no, look, these are, I mean, very thoughtful points. And yes, they definitely came up, Andy and, and Pedro. I have a view that I, I, I just, my fundamental view is this is one of those arcs that's going to take a bit of time to get back in line. And these steps that one could call huge or incremental are just going to take some time to play out. If I were to give an, an analogy from my perspective, um, you know, you know, in the early 1900s, for a while, like a long time, development of drugs was basically unregulated. There was no FDA. There was no, there was no real practical limit on somebody saying, this thing cures that. And you know, there's some terrible stories from the early 1900s about people taking something that had no benefit and getting quite ill. On the other hand, you, other, you have these other stories like the development of insulin that saved just a tremendous number of lives. And at some point in the early 1900s, it got way out of whack and it took passing some incremental laws and it probably took another generation to get us into some order where we expect that something's gonna go through and be approved before we all start taking it. And even now you see there's like great exceptions to it. Um, from my perspective, something like Privacy Shield and GDPR was a huge step forward. But right now the technology side of it and, and Pedro, the benefits of these platforms to normal people day to day are so huge. They just got way, way ahead of where the regulation was and trying to get it trying right now to get everything retrofit given how quickly everything has moved it's going to take some time so i i don't know to me i wasn't really surprised that the european um, high court would have criticisms or strike down even privacy shield for a reason. I mean, I'm not saying I expected it. I, you know, I was hopeful that we did enough and believe me, everybody tried very hard to get it right. But I, I also expected there would be criticisms. The fact that the, you know, the, the United States and Europe are engaging to try and fix it and get another version up to me is like going to be an incremental move. To get to Pedro's point though, there are big, big underlying technologies and platforms and benefits that people have that can't possibly be, you know, accommodated quickly by the laws that are going to be passed or the regs. It's just too fast. Like, you know, to me, I started a technology company that's cloud-based. The level of customers that we're able to serve, Andy and Pedro, you know, we're a growing company, but small because I only buy 
the amount of compute and storage I need at any given moment. And I don't have to stand up a server farm on my own <laughs> that I would have to like buy tons of servers to be able to build across. It's enabled us to be able to accommodate phenomenal customers that I would have never been able to do before, right? 20 years ago. So there's trade-offs, there, there just are. And I think it's gonna take some time for the privacy laws to make incremental progress to accommodate, you know, fundamental. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I'd argue, I like your business example of like how, you know, whatever AWS, Azure, whoever, GCP is helping you scale without you having to like over leverage yourself, right? Like this is a beautiful development in technology that clearly is helping small businesses. I know another one. It's called online advertising, right? If And, and look, and I don't just say that because I work at Facebook. I came to work at Facebook because I actually believe this. Like the greatest economic empowerment force right now for minorities in the United States is the internet. It's not even close, right? Like you can start a, you can start a business if you're creative and smart and 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 talented. You can use the power of the internet to scale your business and find customers in ways that was just cost prohibitive before this existed. And uh, you know, you know, we talk about nine to five. Well, a lot of people talk about their five to nine, and you can turn your five to nine into your nine to five because of the power of scale and connectivity, and 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 these uh, types of technological developments. It goes back to my point earlier, real quick, real quick. Just real quick, it goes back to my point earlier about the need to balance privacy interests, even in the context of it being a right, against other interests, right? Like I, I like we, like the First Amendment in the United States is sacrosanct, but it's not absolute. We know this. We're all lawyers. We know that there are limits to speech, and what those are. And well, we know being lawyers, but nobody thinks that their ability to uh, speak is absolute. Um, and so I think with privacy, we kind of have to put it on that spectrum too and say, well, look, obviously privacy interests matter and they're important and we should advance them, but we have to look at other factors too and then weigh them all together to figure out what is reasonable and what actually, you know, privacy at the harm of other interests may be catastrophic depending on what those interests are and who the individual on the end of those rights and interests is. Sorry, Andy, go ahead, but I didn't mean to cut you, I didn't mean to just block you there. No, go no. I, I I wasn't gonna contribute meaningfully to what you said. I agree with you, but don't you think it's just gonna take like I'll give you an example and I won't name the company. Right now, I'm you know, I'm I'm using multiple platforms and this came up, somebody mentioned this to me. You know, a couple of years ago you couldn't ask for your data to be deleted necessarily. Now most of the major platforms at least enable that. But it's it's right now a bit binary. So you can, on the platform that I was talking to a colleague about the other day, you can either say delete my account entirely, in which case you lose all of your connectivity with all of your friends and the communities you might have, Pedro, or you don't. You don't have a choice to say delete my search history or delete what I was looking at. You know what I mean? It's not fine grained. So it's a it's a great incremental step, I suppose, that I can say, hey, I'm no longer going to use this, this platform at all or this, you know, the search thing at all, delete everything. But over time, I have a pretty strong sense that 
platforms are going to say, I hope at least, because we're bending the right way, it wouldn't be binary that I either have to tell you to get rid of everything and I no longer can participate, or you have to get rid of, you know, you can hold all of my data. So I'm, but I think it's going to take some time to bend to that point so that I'm able to have a little bit more control over how my data is used in the context of using a platform that is meaningful to me. Anyway, I, these are examples that yeah. I think are going to bend over time. But if you just declared it right now, I think it wouldn't, I'm not sure it would, it would be the right approach either. Yeah. And I agree with you completely that, um, uh, you know, there is a need and it is appropriate for all platforms, all data collection, commercial enterprise and government uh, to give people meaningful choices about how their information is used. But see, the laws just didn't get written that way, right? So to your point, while I hope we are on the arc where people will have meaningful choice and have like some granularity in commanding and determining how their information is used by the companies with which they interact with, you know, giving someone a right to erasure is binary. You either got it or you don't, right? And like, that doesn't advance this point of yours, which is like, maybe I don't want you to erase all my stuff. Maybe I want you to use it for some of these purposes, which I care about and not these other purposes, which I just don't like, make me uncomfortable or I'm not interested in. Go ahead, sorry. This is what separates to me the, where, where you start to get into what's the future for privacy tech and why it's a frothy market for privacy tech. Because you have a bunch of companies playing in that space, but you, don't, you only have a few companies that are doing, kind of trying to do both things well. And I think, and Justin can correct me because his company, but I think Wirewheel is trying to do a couple of these things really well. One of which is the, the records management piece, which is essential, but the other piece is how do I create developer tools that allow the extensibility of that to retrofit. So number one, retrofit old companies that, that have built stacks the best way they could because they built them the way they needed to build them at the time they built them, but they, they couldn't do the privacy by design, but then also enable future developers to be able to create stuff that is extensible and can do exactly what we're talking about, which is we had this problem in session M, like with a loyalty program. If someone wants to delete themselves out of a, a loyalty program, but they don't want to lose the points they accrued. I don't, maybe I don't want to get messages from an airline anymore, but I kind of, pro I probably still want to fly that airline if I need to fly it and I want an upgrade. You know, I worked, I, I paid for that upgrade. So in a sense that, that it's funny to think about that as, as going, going, having any real relationship to privacy rights, but it does. It does because you want to be able to pull those levers and companies like Wirewheel are the ones that are in the future going to enable that, the, the granular choice. We may not be there quite yet, but I think that's why, that's why there's juice in the market right now for that. And I'd just yeah. love to hear from you on that. Well, first of all, I mean, I know you all know this, but we, we announced our fundraise today, right? It just went up today and we have a phenomenal investor who's joining our TA table in ForgePoint, which is a real technology focused um, venture capital firm. And we're, we're excited to have them on board, but the, the point you were making, Andy, to me, again, this is gonna be kind of a journey we take even on the technology side. 
and I, I, I kind of think top to the bottom. So the way I think about this, Pedro, because it builds on what you and I were talking about at the beginning. My goal is build the code that is going to be used. And we were lucky enough to be working with enterprises that are just enormous. And so there's a core privacy infrastructure that enables companies like Pedro's and, and others to be able to handle this problem at scale. And we're, we're, we built that, that version of that code and our goal is to democratize it so that as companies are starting up and building, they can build that kind of infrastructure into their products left to right. So in the last year, we're doing two or three things to try to advance that. One is we, we did, we released a developer portal and it's so that if you're starting up and you wanna start thinking about your trust access consent relationship with your customers, or you wanna think about how you're generating your inventories to set you up for your GDPR or California in the future, we gave some code that companies can start building it into the DevOps pipeline or into your, your customer experience. These are starting points. I don't wanna say that we've solved everything we're, we're trying, but that's how we're trying to get ahead of this. Um, Andy, you know this and Pedro, I'd love for you to join, but we started Spokes and made it free and open. And we have like, I mean, one of the things I'm proud of, we have lost students, we have underserved community coming because my view is let's democratize the understanding of what it means to run a privacy program. I gotta be honest, like it's a hard area to learn. Like Pedro, if you think about it, you and, and, and Andy, we have to understand legal stuff. There's a growing complexity in the number of states and, and countries. But I often see the challenge in privacy to, to like up level and get this available to more parts of our communities. It's understanding anything about the technical infrastructure. You know, it's really hard if you're entering the field to understand the difference between infrastructure as a service, software as a service, interconnection platforms as a service. These stuff just comes at you. And I, I do feel like until we up level and give more resources to our community to understand the tech stack together with the laws, we may end up not enabling our community to be um, as open and diverse as we can. So that was part of the goal of Spokes is set up mentorship relationships, make it free and open, make all of our sessions available and bring leaders like Andy who's been speaking, but hopefully Pedro, you too, to just tell people this is what happens when you run a privacy program. Um, and I do think technically there'll be ways that we enable a better understanding of the data and a better trust relationship, but we have a long way to go. Love I mean, it's really that. hard. Sorry. That you're doing that, Justin, because running a privacy program is very different from what I'm doing versus what Pedro's doing. You know, I'm, I'm technically doing the same job <laughs> on some level, but it's not even close to the same job, right? It's very different. And so uh, it's very important to be able to share, well, here's what's happening at Salesforce. Here's what's happening at Facebook. Here's what's happening at large B2C, large B2B. Here's what's happening at a startup. Here's what's happening at an adolescent company. Like there's just, it's all different. Um, and so I think democratizing the information there and letting people know that there is no one way. I think that's really important. Like you can create 
<laughs> like what you do with it, with it, you know, resources and advice from other people about how to do it, because like that's one thing we've learned for sure from the GDPR, CCPA, even going back to the directives and stuff. Like there's there's the law, and then there's like reality, <laughs> and so those two things are not the same. If, if you don't mind my saying, the reason I get so excited when Pedro, you and, and Andy come and talk, because you, do you remember when you were in law school? And again, I'm speaking to the lawyers out there and you were taking all the courses and you're reading the decisions, right? So for the first year of law school, you think everything is almost like an appellate decision. <laughs> and then you're thrown into it. And the day-to-day -day life of what you do as a lawyer versus like the first year of law school when you're reading the laws and the decisions, it's like 180 degrees. So one of the challenges I see with the privacy community right now that we're trying to address, like we're releasing all of these training sessions, it's trying to bridge between what the law says, to be honest, and what you do day-to-day -day in helping your company or your organization on privacy and it's a very different experience. Like if, you're, if your product team comes to you and they say, okay, I need to build this product. And you say, well, let me read you article five. Eight, 12, <laughs> Nobody knows what the heck you're talking about, right? You, you, you don't know, know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's not the, what the life of a privacy yeah. person, the life of a privacy person is, they'll explain to you what they're doing. You have to understand what they're collecting and why they're doing it. You have to make a judgment, right? That says, you know what? You're kind of doing the right thing because you're helping your customer and it's all aligned. Or why are you collecting that information? Do you really need it, right? And are you protecting it? Do you have training? Oh, you're collecting healthcare data. Does everybody really understand what that means? There's an enormously powerful thing you can do if you understand what the day-to-day -day life of what Andy, you and Pedro are doing because you can actually you can actually do a lot. You can help your organization. And that's the bridge we're trying to bring to a broad community, free and open with spokes. That's what Vivek, we're uh, what, Justin, when we talked to Vivek, he made this point really eloquently, um, kind of why he likes doing privacy in-house. It's just, just what you described. It's like, I have, I'm not just avoiding litigation, you know, as, as a risk as a risk profile for my business, I'm actively engaging in the development of features and technology and working with people. And that role as product counsel, it, it, I'm convinced more and more, it's like the, it's at the heart of what we're all trying to do. So whether you're a CEO or the GC or actually, you know, you're actually a product counsel working at a big tech company or something, I do think it's becoming more and more like, where are we, where are we providing the most value? It's, it's kind of in those, in those areas. Um, so I, we have to stop, but um, I'm really, 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 uh, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for. We're gonna do a part two of this one. I, I'm yeah, happy. and 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 we all like we are super friends, and I can't wait until we are super friends in person, uh, uh, having a meal or a drink in 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 Washington someday. Uh, that's we're all looking forward to it. I can't wait. I mean, I can't wait to see you all in person. I can't wait to see the rest of the folks who watch yeah. this uh, in, in person. And I love what you all are doing with this. Um, we'd love to support in any way. Thank Justin, you. thanks for your leadership in our, our little privacy world too, man. Like I know you do a lot of good and you were very humble today, but uh, the breadth and scope of a lot of the work you do uh, 
does not go unseen. So thanks a lot, man. That's nice, Pedro. Same, same thank you, Justin. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thank you.